The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could join us. You know, today's show is a great illustration of what's happened in the world of, quote-unquote, green since we started Go Green Radio. When we started back in 2008, a lot of our guests, were activists. They were uh, folks who were maybe part of uh, nonprofit organizations or NGOs, and that's all great. We still have guests like that. Uh, like, for instance, the uh, executive director of Greenpeace USA was on recently. But today's guest and today's topic illustrates how the investment community and the financial community is beginning to see this idea of green, this idea of sustainability in a dollars and cents way that goes beyond just uh, green market for businesses who want to appear like they're doing something great for the environment and goes far beyond that. We're going to be talking today about a brand new initiative that has been um, put together in a collaboration between three very different but very intelligent and bright, uh, fantastic guys. We've got uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, um, who will be finishing up his mayoral ship of New York City here soon. We've got a former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, who's also part of this, and uh, Tom Steyer, who is, uh, you know, best known actually for, for his hedge fund work with, uh, Farallon Capital. Today our guest is Kate Gordon. She's the executive director of a brand new, um, program that they've put together. It's called the Risky Business Initiative. And and I'm excited to have her on because we're going to be talking about a very unique study that will be calculating the economic risks of climate change in the United States. So, Kate, we're so glad to have you on Go Green Radio. Welcome. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be here. Well, you know, there are a lot of climate change studies out there. Um, hmm. if you Google them and they're, you know, they're a dime a dozen. But I really have faith that this one's going to be different. And I'd love for you to explain to our listeners what will make the study coming out of the Risky Business Initiative unique. Sure, thanks. Um, so Risky Business, as you said, it's a it's a, really a project co-chaired and, and owned by those three co-chairs, uh, Mike Bloomberg, Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer. And um, they are all people who come out of the financial sector uh, or the business sector. And, you know, Tom, um, who I work with pretty closely, uh, and I were talking about six months ago about the ways in which people talk about climate in this country and how the debate so often goes down the um, direction of either a partisan debate about the science, is it real, or a partisan debate about what particular solution we should engage or think about, you know, carbon tax, cap and trade, um, uh, oil subsidies. But, but we both felt like there was something missing in the middle. And um, these three co-chairs are, are using a risky business initiative to, t- to answer the question, what is the economic risk we're facing um, from, cl- potentially facing from climate change in the United States? 
And basically, you know, this comes straight from their financial sector background. It's, it's the question that would be asked if, if the U.S. was a business and we had a risk committee that sort of looked ahead at the risks of our investments, we would be doing an, that committee would be doing an analysis of climate change. And our feeling is we have put this project together to be that risk committee to, uh, and to try to start quantifying those, those potential risks. Well, you know, the three co-chairs have such very different backgrounds. I mean, they're not exactly apolitical, <laughs> but they don't all emanate from the same political, you know, uh, background. Uh, yep. They've served in a variety of different uh, jobs throughout their careers. Talk to us about these three men individually, how they ended up converging on this issue, and what each one brings to the table that you think will add value to this project. Absolutely. Well, you're right that they really come from different places in a way. Politically, um, we have, uh, of course, Hank Paulson, a Republican, served in the Republican administration, Tom Steyer's a Democrat, um, and uh, pretty public about that. And then Mayor Bloomberg is an independent. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum, um, which I think is really underscores, you know, what's interesting about this project. The reason that, that coming from such different backgrounds, these three came together around this idea is honestly that they all believe that it's a smart, it's smart business practice to understand risk. Each one of them has, uh, has, has seen the impact of, um, you know, extreme weather, for instance. So Mayor Bloomberg, um, Superstorm Sandy was really a wake up call for Mayor Bloomberg in terms of climate impacts and the need for New York City to start looking long term to how to deal with those long term risks of, of future events. Uh, for Hank Paulson, he's a longtime conservationist, but also somebody who has in his economic uh, approach, you know, sort of national economic approach, really taken a risk-based perspective. Um, look, you're looking at long-term outlier events and thinking about how those relate to, to current investments. And Tom is somebody who, when he left Fairlawn Capital at the end of last year, devoted, decided to devote all his time to working on climate and energy issues and brings, again, a very strong financial and, in his case, hedge fund perspective to long-term investments and long-term thinking. So I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, I think it's that they're, each of them individually cares about environment and the climate issue in a particular way, but what they really come together around is this approach of just taking a sober look at what, you know, what do the facts actually tell us about the long-term potential catastrophic risks here, and how do we start thinking about that when we're making current investments, whether it's private investments in the financial sector or public investments from governments at the state, federal, local level. Right. Now, there are going to be two components of the Risky Business yep. Initiative, um, the first one being a study that's due out in 2014. Talk yep. to us about who is working on this study and where the research is coming from. Sure, absolutely. And let me uh, take a little bit of a step back first and say that the co-chairs are, are, are hugely important and influential and have helped design this project. There is actually a, a full risk committee under the co-chairs, and we have not announced that full committee yet, um, and we'll do so probably in the next couple of weeks. We're, we're just waiting for the confirmation from the last couple people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a group, uh, that risk committee is a group of very high-level folks from uh, a few more from the financial side, but also from other sectors that are used to looking at long-term risk and sort of operationalizing it in their daily practice. So health, for instance, we do this with health insurance. National security, obviously threat assessments are basically long-term catastrophic risk assessments, and uh, agriculture, which also does it. So there's a risk committee, 
And then there is, as you just said, an entire study. So the risk committee is asking the question, what potential catastrophic risk are we taking on as a country? We, they've commissioned a study to help answer that question, and that's an intensive study. It's U.S. only, and it's by region of the U.S., um, and particular, uh, and has a particular focuses within regions. So we have a particular focus on coastal communities, for instance, um, mm-hmm. a particular focus on agriculture. That study is being um, staffed by an uh, organization or a research group called Rhodium, the Rhodium Group, which is a New York-based economic research firm, which they are staffing that, that report, and they are pulling together an independent group of very high-level climate scientists and, econo- and economists and risk analysts to essentially do the analysis, and then they have a separate group peer-reviewing the analysis. So that's a, Rhodium is pulling all those pieces together, but there are a number of people involved in that group. We have a Nobel Prize winning economist. We have some very high-level climate scientists, a number of academics. So it's a very impressive group of people. Um, and, uh, and we really chose Rhodium uh, because they have a long history in helping investors understand risk. This is what they're comfortable in. They've also done a lot of work in particularly looking at um, the oil and gas markets and in energy sectors as related to risk. And so we thought we felt like they had a really strong, they come in very strong on these sets of issues. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about these various regions that the study will divide the U.S. up into, what kinds of deliverables for each region can the people who live in those regions expect to see in the study? Well, you know, there's only so much I can, I can't, uh, I obviously we haven't finished it. Right. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to be really careful in not prejudging the results too much. One, one thing we, we designed this, pro- we thought a lot about in designing this project was how to have the research be as bulletproof as possible. We, we have seen sort of what happens with a lot of climate studies that the minute that they uh, they come out, they become sort of a punching bag for people on different sides of these partisan issues we talked about. Right. We wanted to make this sure this study was as insulated as possible. So we're we're trying pretty hard not to prejudge the results, and I actually can't completely tell you the results. But I will tell you, you know, um, uh, we the the genesis of the study and the whole project in the first place was sort of looking at existing extreme weather and climate events and seeing how they're being felt across the U.S. Superstorm Sandy droughts and floods, the wildfires, heat waves, the recent tropical storm, obviously not in the U.S., but, but relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of event has inspired this question of, you know, what, what is this long-term risk to our economy? So I think in terms of, of the regions, of, of what people can see from the study and what that risk may look like, clearly that sort of potential risk of increased frequency and severity of extreme weather is a big piece of it. Um, mm-hmm. That's something we're expecting to see, particularly in coastal communities because of sea level rise, of course, but there's also mm-hmm. uh, a lot of impact on just areas that are, that, that, that are very dependent on water. So you'll see you know, either increased precipitation in some places leading to floods um, or decreased precipitation leading to drought. Um, that will have a long-term impact on the southwest, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the upper Midwest, the coastal areas. Um, We'll certainly look at that. Uh, we will also, we expect to see an impact, an economic impact on the agricultural sec- sector from more fr- frequent droughts and heat waves, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's particular parts of the country. We expect to see um, 
uh, significant impacts on our energy supply. So increased energy demand, more expensive energy supply, because we're, you know, going to be using air conditioning a lot more in some parts of the country. Decreased water availability makes water more expensive. So there's all kinds of, of impacts like that um, that we expect to see. One thing we're looking at that others have not looked at, which is interesting, is um, uh, or have not looked at in, in this detail, is the question of what is the economic impact of all of these th- these heat and precipitation events on labor productivity. So, mm. you know, it turns out if it's very hot and very humid, it's hard for outdoor um, uh, workers to do their jobs. Uh, so there's a, in fact, a, it looks like there may be a significant impact there. Um, on on construction, for instance, on outdoor, on on yard and lawn care, on other outdoor activities, some tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of the things we're looking at. That's really interesting. Uh, we've, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come of back, course. I want to talk a little bit more about the study, um, some of the output, and some of the things that you can reveal to us. It sounds like this is just one great big open invite to come back when the study's done and I can't wait. But I do want to talk a little bit more about um, what we can expect and how you're crafting the project. When we take this commercial break, we'll be right back, folks, with more Go Green Radio. So stay tuned. Be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm glad that you could all join us if you happen to just be tuning in. Let me catch you up for a moment. We're talking about a brand new initiative called the Risky Business Initiative. And actually, if you want to check out the website, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But you can open a new tab in your web browser and go to riskybusiness.org. And there you'll find out some information about this brand new study. And we'll be talking about the study and, and also about the engagement piece of the uh, of the project in just a moment. But our guest today is Kate Gordon. She's the executive director of this initiative. And uh, we were just talking about before the break uh, a little bit about the structure of the study that will be coming out next year on the economic impact of climate change by region within the U.S. And and Kate, I know that uh, you know you feel very strongly about how this study was. Um, was put together in terms of regions. Talk to us a little bit more about what those regions are and and why you delineated the study by these particular particular reason, uh, regions. Sure. Um, you know, I've been uh, active in this, in sort of energy, um, in particular energy issues, but also climate for a number of years. And one thing that I've really come to believe strongly is that all energy issues are regional and all and and that you have to talk about them, you know, uh, based on the, the, the place that people live. Uh, energy systems are different across the country. Uh, climate systems are different across the country. People relate to the area they live in. They relate to those energy costs, those energy needs, those, um, those climate conditions. So we felt when, when thinking about this project that, you know, first of all, we decided to make it a U.S. only project, which which some people have criticized um, because climate is a global issue, huge global issue, and in fact, the United States is you know, doing a fairly good job of starting to level out our carbon emissions. We need to reduce them a lot, but we're leveling out a bit. Other countries are dramatically expanding, so a lot of people have said, "Why are you doing the U.S.?" Um, and uh, um, and then within the U.S., we're doing we're doing uh, subregions, and and there's a, the real answer to that is that. That's how people relate to these types of uh, types of issues. That that there have been some very very good studies that are that are global. So the uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC um, uh, project, the the Nicholas Stern uh, Lord uh, Lord or Sir Nicholas Stern uh, big Stern report in 2006 that looked at the economics of inaction on climate change. Those global studies are really, really good and helpful, but it's very hard for a lot of people to relate to them. Um, it doesn't feel, for a U.S. audience, it doesn't necessarily connect to talk about global macroeconomic trends. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to focus in on the U.S. only, be pretty parochial about that, and sort of say, look, this isn't only an issue that's affecting you know, the, the Pacific Islands and the Maldives, it's affecting... Uh, the U.S. too, and we also mm-hmm. wanted to then go within the U.S. and say, and you know what, it's affecting different parts of the U.S. differently, and it's going to be a bigger issue uh, in some places than others, and the risks will look different, and the impacts will look different. So it's really, um, you know, I guess the short answer is in some ways it comes out of my my organizing background where my, you know, my, my, uh, my rule number one is you start where people are, so we're trying to start where people are. Mm-hmm. And what are these eight regions? Uh, you said well, coastal communities. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us more about how you've divided up the country. The regions are the, we actually took the regions that the National Climate Assessment, which was a U.S. government project on climate, took. Um, so there's eight 
regions across the United States. They're, uh, they're multi-state regions that are, that are put together by basically climate zone and impact zone. And some of them are sort of, some of them make uh, intuitive sense and some of them a little bit less, but, you know, they're, so, so it's sort of what you would think, you know, Northwest, Mountain West, uh, you know, Southwest, mm-hmm. uh, Midwest, Plain states, um, uh, northeast, southeast. It's, it's kind of the regions you would think. It's the way the way people tend to divide up the country in their heads. It's pretty close to what, what those regions look like. Makes makes sense. Um, you know, <laughs> in 2012, uh, the California Energy Commission had a representative on Go Green Radio, and they had released a study that was um, the product of 120 scientists' work to look at climate change forecasts. Um, in specificity that was unparalleled in terms of how um, climate change is predicted to impact county by county, region by region yeah. of the state of California. And it's pretty extensive and impressive study. But I think the hope was that maybe the California League of Cities or somebody would pick this up and take this information and that it would spur action. And I'm not saying that it hasn't, but maybe not in the way that the study, the folks who did the study might have envisioned. Um, is that similar to what you're hoping for in terms of, you know, we put out this great information and that will spur action? Or do you have a little bit of a different mindset in terms of what happens after the study is published? Well, it's a great question. And I really urge listeners to go look at the California Energy Commission 2012 studies because they're really phenomenally good. So they're, um, they, they were part of what inspired us to do this project. So I, I highly recommend them. Um, but, you know, we are taking a little bit of a different approach. Um, I uh, and my team at Next Generation, which is staffing the project, um, it, we're very focused on uh, doing all of the work we do, all of the substantive work we do in the context of engagement and communications. Mm-hmm. So we don't do a project without thinking through from the very beginning, how are we going to communicate the project, talk about the project, engage people with the project, you know, from day one. I don't. I think the traditional kind of think tank and government agency way to attack a study like this would be to say, you know, to go kind of back in a dark room and, and put some people to work with green eye shades and do really, really <laughs> solid, credible work, emerge a year and a half later with a study and then hand it to their communications team and say, hey, we need a press release. That's kind of the old school way that, that nonprofits tend, and government institutions tend to do this. We're taking a really, really different approach. I mean, we've are, as you know, we've already launched this project, even though the study won't be done until next June. We've already put the co-chairs out there making a public case through a, uh, uh, through a Washington Post op-ed that this question needs to be answered. They're already on record as being engaged on this project and will be over the next six months, will be engaging other risk committee members in a similar way, mm-hmm. um, asking the question from their own particular areas of expertise and audience and sectors. Why do we need to understand this risk? What is it? What do the impacts look like now? What are the, you know, why do we need to have a better long-term picture? So we're doing engagement really from day one to build up a set of really credible and, and intelligent and uh, influential messengers to uh, put out the idea of the importance of a risk analysis into the public debate. And then when the study comes out, we will have built all of that context, and then we'll have the numbers to, to, bring, to bring back around and say, okay, this is what we've learned, and now what do we do with those numbers? So I think that we are, we're trying very much to make this 
and we, we always describe it, it's not just a report. It's, an, it's a public engagement project. So we're trying well, very much to kind of think that through. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and that, that sounds awesome. Um, you know, I mean, I, I love the idea of the engagement starting, you know, even now. But in the study itself, mm-hmm. do you expect to see recommendations? Like, for instance, if a certain region... Uh, is predicted to have an incredible amount of impact on its energy infrastructure. Like in Hurricane Sandy, there was, you know, down power lines as a result of, you know, large uh, transmission distribution um, systems versus distributed generation. Do you expect to see in the study some recommendations by region for addressing some of the economic risks, or will that be something that happens after the study when, you know, the the regional leaders get together and look at the economic risks outlined in the study? That's a great question and another thing that we thought a lot about, so um, I'm happy happy to talk about it. We are not going to have recommendations in the study. It's not going to have solutions in it at all. Um, And that's been another interesting, that was an interesting decision. we may, we decided essentially, you know, to treat this like a real risk assessment. So we, what we're doing with this study is, is presenting the range of, of, uh, the, the, the uh, we're quantifying the cost of low probability but high catastrophe, uh, risks of climate change. So if we get to global warming of a, a pretty catastrophic nature. Um, what does that look like to the U.S. economy? What does it look like to the regional economies? We can actually even go down to the state level. What does it look like to state economies? Um, you know, and then we hand that off, essentially. So uh, just as a risk committee would do in a financial institution, we hand it to the decision makers and we say, here's what we know. Now, based on your risk appetite, what do you want to do with it? Um, and I'll tell you why we did that. It's, there's a couple of reasons. The first of them is actually um, just a strategic reason, which is, the minute you start talking about solutions, then people divide along lines of solutions. So there are people who are extremely focused. Mayor Bloomberg is a great example. Everyone knows he's extremely focused on on coal as an issue. So on, on he's been a big funder of the Beyond Coal campaign at, at the Sierra Club, for instance. Um, that's a big solution that he's invested in. Um, George Schultz, who is part of the project, and you know that's been—I think he's been outed as part of the project already. So I can—I can say him. Uh, George Schultz is very focused, as most people know, on a revenue-neutral carbon tax as the main solution that he's paying attention to. So different people have different ideas about what the right solution is, and we didn't want to have the project become a place where that fight was happening. We wanted to be able to say you know, we're all together presenting this risk and we're putting it out there for people to react to how how they want. Um, the second reason is that people do have different risk appetites. I mean, if you are a city manager in a city that has potential high risk because you're coast on a coastline, for instance, you have a sea level risk rise, your risk appetite uh, may be, you know, you may want to react to those risks with very specific, like New York did, with very specific plans for shoring up your city to be more resilient against against those those impacts. You, so you may say, I have a short-term desire to do something to make my city more resilient. If you are the senator from that state, for instance, um, and in Washington and have the ability to, you're elected for a longer period of time, you're looking at longer-term scenarios, you're doing bigger picture, bigger picture projects, 
your risk, you may be able to take a look at those same numbers and say, look, there's a, there's a good response there in terms of shoring up the city, but we really need to start thinking about bringing down these carbon numbers because we can't afford as a nation to take on this level of risk over the long term. So we want to be able to hand this off and say, whatever your risk tolerance, here are the facts that you need to be dealing with in order to make decisions. You know, it's up to you to make them. Um, and the last thing I'll say on that is that one way we're, we're doing that is to make the entire project and all of the methodology open source. So mm-hmm. everybody can dig into it and look at it and use it however they want. So based on what you said, Kate, do you expect the study to focus more on climate change mitigation or climate change adaptation? Because this is a real balancing act right now. Do you <laughs> think that the co-chairs have a sense of where our assets need to be invested, whether it's in arresting climate change or just learning to live with it? Well, you know, I mean, I think that goes back to the solutions question. So the study will not put adaptation or mitigation, you know, up front because the study isn't going to put solutions out there. Um, I will say that, that, that the methodology we're using, you know, assumes a certain amount of adaptation because people do adapt at a certain, certain level to some of these changing conditions. But um, we, we are not uh, putting out that solution, you know, putting one of those solutions in front of the other. I actually think that one thing that, that, this, that this risk approach does is kind of underscore that adaptation and mitigation aren't that different from each other. They're more like a continuum. Uh, adaptation is a short-term response to to climate change from particularly communities that have, you know, frontline impacts, and mitigation is a long-term response that's about bringing down the carbon numbers. So, you know, again, we really think it's, you know, the, the responses will be different depending on the audience, mm-hmm. and that some of those responses will probably be adaptation responses, and some of them will be mitigation responses. Well, and I think you're right in terms of the way that everyday Americans might look at mitigation and adaptation, but talk to somebody in the oil and gas industry or the Mm -hmm. coal industry, and they don't see it that way because they know very well that mitigation means an impact to their product (laughs) and that, uh, you know, adaptation means we can continue selling their product and just learn to deal with the the fallout. And so I think that that is where the rub is. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about the engagement piece. After the study comes out, how will the engagement by region and across the nation uh, happen? And we'll have Kate explain that to us a little bit further. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. 
Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, I want you to check out this website. Keep listening to us with this tab open in your web browser on voiceamerica.com, but open up a new tab in your web browser and go to riskybusiness.org. And there you're going to see a brand new initiative that's co-chaired by the current mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, uh, former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, and uh, Fairlawn Capital founder, uh, Tom Steyer. And this is a really exciting new initiative that's going to be assessing the economic risk of risk of climate change to the United States. We're talking with Kate Gordon, who's the executive director overseeing this initiative, and there's a study that will be coming out next year. And just before the last break, we were I kind of dropped a big issue <laughs> in the midst of the <laughs> conversation, and that's uh, this the kind of push and pull of whether we mitigate climate change, whether we adapt to climate change, or maybe that it's, as Kate mentioned, a continuum uh, of, that somehow we, we have to do both at the same time. And just for those of you who are listening who may be unfamiliar with those terms, climate change mitigation means we arrest uh, and we pull back on our carbon emissions such that this greenhouse gas effect that's being created by all this uh, carbon emissions, mostly due to the burning of fossil fuels for energy, um, is is arrested or, or somehow mitigated. Climate change adaptation means Look, we've reached a point where the climate is changing. It's going to continue to change even if we pull back on our carbon emissions and we need to make some lifestyle choices, some public policy decisions that will help human beings continue to thrive and live well and live healthy even under climate change conditions. So that's what we were talking about when we say mitigation versus adaptation. And Kate, I know that you wanted to add some more to that discussion. So please feel free to go right ahead and do that. Great. Thanks, um, Jill. Yeah, I mean, I think I think all I wanted to add really was that um, I guess I'm sort of on a crusade to break down the adaptation mitigation dichotomy a little bit because mm-hmm. I do really think that uh, that some of it comes down to sort of short-term and long-term planning and urgency to particular decision-makers versus urgency of a long-term problem. So, of course, those who are focused on climate change, as I am in my career, are focused on long-term mitigation. I mean, ultimately, there's a big change that's got to happen in the way that we produce and generate and produce and use energy. Um, but for some people, like, for instance, city planners or, or folks who are, are experiencing immediate impacts, adaptation is a necessity. 
Um, it's the it's the ground zero thing. It's the it's it's kind of the first it's the step that you have to start taking in order to start thinking about the longer stuff. So, I would just say, you know, the real goal of the Risky Business Project is to make uh, is, is to bring these issues of the risk we're taking into everyday decisions and to operationalize them and to basically get them into the DNA of how we make decisions in the United States. Mm-hmm. If climate risk is in your DNA and you're a private investor, it's in your DNA in every investment you make, which means you're thinking hard about whether to do investments in high-carbon fossil fuel companies because you're thinking, hey, over the long term, these investments might not be that good. These might become you know, as they say, stranded assets. We might not, uh, these, these companies may not fare so well if we ever have a price on carbon, if we have to strictly limit carbon emissions. If it's in your DNA and, and you're making every, you know, every decision you make as a public investor, as a city or a state, you're saying, hey, we need to build up new infrastructure to, to, uh, to deal with the potential impacts of climate change, but we should also be thinking about making that infrastructure as low carbon as possible. We should be thinking about how we're building and designing our cities in a way that actually takes these long-term carbon impacts into account. So I think it's kind of like we're looking at, 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 at the risk analysis as a, as, a, as, a, as a way to take a very, what seems like a long-term issue and turn it into something that's operationalized in, frankly, every decision that we're making. Well, and, you know, what's interesting about that, too, is, and we talk about this on Go Green Radio, it's, you know, it's on the one hand, yes, fossil fuels are, you know, rich in carbon, and, and we're hoping that cities and, and other public policymakers will begin to shift, you know, away from, uh, you know, those heavy emitting uh, technologies to lower emitting ones. But there's a there's another really basic reality out there, and that that is fossil fuels are finite. They will not last forever. In fact, mm-hmm. with some of the fuels, you can count on one hand the number of generations they're expected to last in terms of the supply that we currently need. And so given that, for long-term infrastructure planning, I mean, when you can look at, you know, the number of generations uh, on one hand or, or less than that and the number of fingers that you could hold up for how long these fuels will last at the supplies we need, we need to be thinking about infinite uh you know, forms of, of energy to meet our needs. And so I hope that that's part of the, the discussion as well. Um, you know, after the study is released, you have this engagement portion that you'll be engaging upon. And I'd love for you to describe what that's going to look like. Help us understand, are these going to be like big conventions, small caucuses? Right. What will that look like? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit in, in, in discussion, but we know some pieces of it. So, um, so as I said earlier, we're really focusing the project you know, we're trying not to do the classic project of release and then sort of press conference. We're trying mm-hmm. to have a, a pre-release. We're doing a pre-release period where we're really talking about the reasons that these folks, the co-chairs, and also our broader risk committee, why are they asking this question? So why is Hank Paulson and Mayor Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, why are they asking the question of what's the risk we're facing? Why are the other risk committee members asking that question for their particular sectors or audiences? After the release, um, we will obviously have the results, and there'll be a lot of different ways to get engaged with those results. So, uh, certainly, our co-chairs and our risk committee members are very excited about engaging with those results in particular forms that are very key to them. So, whether those are conferences or events that they're already going to, um, uh, like the World Economic Forum or other er- other places where there's a sort of high-level economic influencer conversations. Um, whether it's it's conferences like the National Governors Association, whether it's uh, there's going to be any number of private conversations and convenings. I mean, this project is really 
kind of about in high level influencers talking to folks who are making high level decisions. So some of it will be private. Um, and uh, some of it will depend on you know, the results, honestly. I mean, if we see significant results, significantly higher costs in particular regions of the country or particular sectors of the economy, we will, and we'll know that, you know, from the early results, we'll design engagement around that. We're, we're very much open to the results kind of shaping our engagement strategy. Well, I'm just going to put out, you know, my two cents worth on this because I tend to Absolutely. be sort of a populist. <laughs> and so on behalf of all the Go Green Radio listeners who love to get great information, I'm going to encourage you guys to make this as public as possible and for you to encourage everyday Americans in some way to get engaged with this. For the public policy piece that, that we hope will come out of, of this study, um, there's nothing like voters <laughs> yep. and voter pressure um, to, to sway public policymakers. We've seen that happen um, for the good and for the bad just recently um, in our country with the government shutdown and all the hoopla that was going on around that. So I'm hoping that there'll be a way for everyday Americans to get a hold of the information and uh, and to engage as well. You know, Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, let me just say really quickly on that, and I want to just emphasize it, is that First of all, the entire methodology um, will be open source. So for for the, you know, this is not exactly populist, but for sort of the climate modelers out there uh, and, and for organizations that are doing work kind of translating these types of results into, into uh, uh, pieces that they're using to engage their own audiences and their own members, that's going to be completely available. We're completely interested in handing off results in whatever form necessary to whoever wants them, and we want this to be broadly shared. We ourselves, um, the project itself, given who our messengers are, you know, we want to be really deliberate about kind of having the folks engaged in the project at the risk committee level talk to the audiences that are going to be most receptive to them. But we're completely open to and already talking to other organizations that have a much more populist approach about ways to translate this um, and, and get it out there. We just great. may not be the right people to do it. And I'm, I'm really, really sensitive to having the right messengers for the right message. I don't think it makes sense to have um, sort of a high-level elite influencer group of people being trying to put out a populist message. I think we need to think about the right messengers. Agreed. I think, you know, that more and more, I mean, partly because of social media and partly because everybody's kind of torqued about the NSA spying on everybody, that people <laughs> are really, their, their appetite for private anything is is waning. And yep. there's not a lot of trust right now in uh, our, our leadership across private industry, public sector. And, uh, and I think people you know, are, are anxious to have information that's meaningful in their own hands. I can't help but notice that, you know, the timing of this may be happenstance or it may be on purpose, but, you know, this study is going to come out right when everybody's worked up into a big old lather about the 2016 presidential cycle. And there's going to be a, a lot of, of stuff going on, you know, on cable news when it comes to politics at that point. Um, <laughs> how, how do you expect this study to shape that that discussion? Do you think that this will help infuse climate change issues into the discussion for the 2016 presidential cycle? Oh, that's a great a great question. It's funny. I'm laughing because I I was at the Center for American Progress in D.C. for a few years, and uh, 
I feel like the political, um, the political folks who follow, follow politics are worked up into a ladder constantly about one thing <laughs> or another. So there are very few times when there is no ladder except maybe congressional recesses. But, um, <laughs> but no, it's true. I mean, it's true that there'll be a lot of speculation and, um, you know, this isn't climate is a, we are not designing the project to be political, but climate is in, in, increasingly an, an issue that's coming up in political races. We just saw that, of course, in the Virginia race um, for governor and uh, starting to see this question of, you know, what's your, what, what's your take on climate change kind of come up in these conversations. One way that I think that, that the risk approach will be interesting is, you know, again, it, it, part of the goal here is to really take what's a, what's a difficult, an issue that's difficult to get your head around and feels very long term and make it into something that actually affects short-term decisions. And I think there's a real, you know, depending on what we find, there's, there's, there's a real need to start asking decision makers, public and private decision makers, how are you incorporating these numbers into your everyday decisions? What are you thinking about this long-term climate risk? How are you, how are you planning to govern, you know, with that in mind? How are you planning to invest our public taxpayer dollars with that in mind? So we feel like it's a way to bring climate issues to the present, but it's a way to do it in a very pragmatic and very, you know, nonpartisan. It's really just the question of, okay, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to, what's your risk appetite, you know, uh, uh, and how are you going to start incorporating these, these, these questions into your decision? Well, I think that's a very interesting point. I want to I want to pick that up when we come back from break. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the political impact uh, that this may have and for the good, for the bad, somewhere in between. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. You know, this is such an interesting topic because on the one hand, we begin with a study that is purely economic in nature. What are the economic risks of climate change to the U.S.? Seems pretty nonpartisan, but none of us are naive. <laughs> we know that when this study is released, it will, you know, be taken up by partisans on both sides of the aisle. Um, and, and that's just the reality of how these things go. But I think what I'm hoping, and Kate, I, I want your reaction to this, is that what's going to happen for people in the public policy making arena is that there'll no longer be this idea that whoops here comes hurricane sandy we had no idea that this could could impact us this way we couldn't have possibly planned because now a study like this region by region will show um what is likely to happen what good science shows us we should be planning for and i'm hoping you know and again this may be crazy talk but i'm hoping that uh, politicians and public policymakers on both sides of the aisle will be able to come together on common ground of, hey, let's take care of our region. Let's look at this study in a smart way to make sure that the people of our region are well cared for and that we're, we're planning accordingly. What's your yeah. hope in that regard? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, uh, my hope is that, uh, my hope is that we'll, we'll be able to have a kind of a grown up conversation about what the <laughs> risks look like and that there won't be, you know, once those results are out, uh, there won't be anyone who can say they didn't know that, that, that they didn't, that they're not planning for this future because they didn't know that the future was a possibility. We're, we really want to say, okay, folks, um, you know, here are just, here are the facts. Whatever it is that they say, you, you know, you need to engage with them in some way. Now, if the way you engage with them is to say, hey, I have a really high risk tolerance, I'm just going to spin the dice, that's your right, but that you may be held accountable for that. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And if the way you want to engage is to say, look, I have a lower risk tolerance, I'm looking out for my region in this particular way, we want people to have the, the, the space to do that on both sides of the aisle. You know, you have an interesting quote in one of the articles that's been written about this initiative. I love it. It says, this cannot be a liberal narrative about an apocalyptic future. How are you going to make sure that this project is not seen that way? I know it's going to be characterized that way by some folks, but what steps go. are you actually taking to ensure that the project is not exactly that? <laughs> you know, I, I said that, and and, and uh, um, I was in the Bloomberg Markets piece about the project. I said that, you know, I, I in part because I feel like that's sort of some of what's been happening, um, and I have deep respect for people uh, who are out there talking about what an urgent issue climate change is. It is an urgent issue, and I have a lot of respect for people out there kind of beating that drum, but I, I kind of... I myself have had apocalypse fatigue. I mean, I feel, like, you know, I, I feel really unable to act and I feel really disempowered whenever I think that all of this stuff is inevitable and apocalyptic. So what I really, what we're trying to do in this project again is to sort of say, okay, this feels inevitable and apocalyptic to a lot of people, but you know, we're used to that, you know, we're used to taking stuff that may feel apocalyptic and turning it into something we can deal with. So the classic example is national security threat assessments. You know, the scenarios that the, that the Department of Defense deals with in its threat assessments are, are apocalyptic. Um, yeah. and, but, but you take those and you take them apart and you look at the risk and you look at the probabilities and you figure out what you can do today to reduce those probability to, to reduce the risk, to address the risk, um, uh, to, you know, adapt to and mitigate the risk. We do that. We should be doing that here. So for me personally, it turns climate change into something, you know, operate that I can deal with. 
um, that, that I can deal with thinking through, that's a huge goal uh, of the project. So I feel like, you know, both by including people who are, um, not, you know, not liberals <laughs> from both sides of the aisle, uh, including people who, for whom climate change is not their central issue, but they are used to taking a risk approach. And uh, by really taking this sort of measured approach to the issue, I think, I think we are walking away from that. Um, it's kind of funny because there, I get, I get some criticism on the other side too, that people don't think we're urgent enough um, mm-hmm. or apocalyptic enough in this project. So, you know, there's, there's always people with opinions on, on, on whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> always. <laughs> Inevitably. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, if you were to look in your crystal ball um, and look at the nation five to ten years from now, if the Risky Business Initiative is as successful as it possibly could be, if it meets every objective that in your mind would mean success, yep. how do you see our nation, whether it's region by region or as a whole, different, you know, five, ten years down the road than we are today? What's your mm-hmm. ideal outcome look like? You know, it really is that these numbers and probabilities are incorporated into every decision. I, you know, I sometimes think of this like, um, oh, like let's say the balanced budget idea. So balancing the budget is a particular idea. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a particular economic approach. It's a particular strategy. Um, it's become something that's so pervasive as a concept that all, you know, there's every budget decision that happens in Washington has to be about how you're going to balance the budget. So, you know, it's, it's not just an accounting trick. It's actually a, uh, it's actually an economic approach. You know, I think about that sometimes and I think about this and it's like, I, I just think climate risk needs to be part of our economic approach. I think it needs to be something that, you know, is talked about very openly um, uh, at different levels of government and, di- and in the private sector. We need to be thinking it through as necessary to sort of how we think about current investments. We need to be able to answer the question of why we're making current investments with those when we know those risks. Um, so what I'd like to see is climate risk incorporated into every decision we make at every level and that there's a, that, that folks are re- decision makers are reacting to it at every level. I think ultimately that if we if if it seeps into the DNA to that extent, it's going to be something we're going to have to deal with on a policy uh, at the policy level and the international level as well. Do you see there being a greater role for public policymakers in the outcome of this study, or a greater role for the the private sector? Yeah, it's both really. I mean, I, I think it's it's the study is designed so that anybody making uh, any kind of financial decision that you know. Uh, on which climate risk might have an impact is paying attention, which is a lot of decisions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you if you think of carbon as sort of essential to a massive number of our industries and economic sectors and to the way we, you know, generate, produce, and use energy across the entire economy, that's a lot of different decisions to have that, ha- have to have this overlay. So I think it's both, um, you know, we have on the project uh, people with strong private sector financial experience and strong public sector financial experience. So we're, we are really trying to bring both of those perspectives. Great. In the final moments of the show, Kate, I'm just wondering, uh, give us, you know, two or three things that you want our listeners to take from this. What can they look forward to? What should they be thinking about as this project unfolds? Um, what yeah. parting thoughts do you want to leave with us? Um, great. Yeah. I, uh, well, you've asked a lot of great questions, so you, you don't leave me too much room for things you haven't asked. But um, I guess the, the main thing I would say is um, that, that I hope that people come away with a sense that this isn't, 
you know, that climate change isn't something that's so inevitable or so scary or so huge or so far away that we can't think about it, that, that we actually do that a lot. I mean, the health, the healthcare debate is, is highlighting how we do it in health insurance. We're, I'm constantly making decisions on a daily basis that have to do with this long-term low probability catastrophic events like mm-hmm. lung cancer. Like I don't smoke partly because I don't want to get lung cancer and lung cancer is pretty low probability for me, but I'm thinking about it and how I'm making these everyday decisions. You know, we actually do that a lot and climate change shouldn't be this scary thing that people can't get their heads around and so they sort of put it Absolutely. off to the side as a scary, urgent thing that they can't deal with. It's something we can comforting. think about. We can think yep. about practically. And I think for every every parent out there who's got DNA invested in the future already, that's a comforting yeah. thought. And I think it's a really smart approach to take a, an economic risk assessment of this issue. It's a fresh it's a fresh look. Thanks so much for joining us, Kate. And folks get out there on riskybusiness.org and check it out. Look forward to the study coming out next year and we'll have you back on to talk about the outcome. We're going to be back same time, same place next week, folks. So until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.